0: 1973. The artist, Robert Klein. The album, Child of the 50s. And now, the Comedy on Vinyl podcast with your host, Jason Klom. Hey everybody, thank you for being here this week. Mark Miller is with me. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. You picked Robert Klein's Child of the 50s, which we've talked about on the podcast before, but not we haven't covered it. People have mentioned it, but we haven't actually covered it. And I'm curious first of all, when you first heard it, and why why you why this is important for you to talk about this week uh
1: Robert Klein was one of the comedians that I grew up uh loving mm-hmm. um, and I bought his albums as they came out, so I still own the original albums. He just really made me laugh, and I think he related to uh the younger generation of people as opposed to you'd see comedians. Uh, on the Ed Sullivan show, like Jackie Mason and mm-hmm. and old-style Catskills-type comedians. Well, this was like a new-wave comedian who came along and, and talked about subjects that related to actual people and not uh, divorces and right. cigars and things of an older generation. So yeah. uh, I loved him.
0: Yeah. So did you first... See him on a show, and/or did you hear him on the radio? What, what was your first exposure to him as a comedian? Uh,
1: I, I probably did see him on a show, and I don't remember which show, but I, I remember uh, just being impressed.
0: Yeah. Do you, so you picked, is it, so I, my apologies, is this his first, or is this the first one that you grabbed? Of his? That you bought of his? Uh,
1: I I don't even know the order. I have another one that has uh, a dentist image on the cover, like a big mouth or Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. Um, and a few others. But I I just just like the Beatles. I bought everything that came out when it came out.
0: Yeah. Uh, This album is really... It's one of the things we've talked about, which is exactly what you said, that he was this... He signified change in stand-up comedy. And he's really important to the development and, and an under an underappreciated element of that change. Um, so was it his... I mean, was it the content or was it the way he spoke that attracted you to his comedy? Or was it a bit of both? I'm just curious. Yeah,
1: I, I think it was everything. Uh, I, I guess he's had some acting background. He's, mm-hmm. he's acted in movies. Sure. And, and he, he acts his comedy. If you listen to his stand-up... Mm-hmm. He he takes on the characters. He sets up little scenes, yeah. which I love, and he he does different voices, and he's s- sort of an all-round entertainer. There's even a couple of songs right. with full production value on the album, mm-hmm. uh, a blues song and and they're they're funny songs. So uh, and he emphasizes words. He really hits them.
0: Yes,
1: you know? yeah. He'll, you know, he'll 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 uh, do something like. Because she said it was mine. And he will hit the comedy word really strong. And yeah. that was a good lesson for us aspiring, we aspiring comedians. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's true also is that format-wise, or at least it is, uh, uh, just even auditorially, the guy is a different kind of comedian. The rhythms are different. And like you say, he hits words in a different way where he's not, where it wasn't da da like he Like he would hit the word that was most important to him, it feels like. Yes. You know? Um... Is there, do you have a favorite bit off of this of this album? Because also, first of all, I'm excited you still have the inserts and they're in great shape.
1: Right. Um, boy, I, I, I love so much of it. Uh, he, he talks about our gang, that old yes. 30s, and he does the different characters from that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I love that. Uh, talks about his school a lot. Uh, civil defense, where mm-hmm. they made mm-hmm. a lot more of it than it should have been Uh, school assemblies was really fun Um,
0: he's a I'm wondering, too, is uh, he's talking about some things that I know I've heard since. People have definitely lifted bits from him, or at least made the same observations. Like, you know, he's making this observation about what the typical uh, lunch lady looked like, and I feel like maybe he's the first guy to really give that picture to us. You know what I mean? Right.
1: Well, you know, uh, Robin Williams, who who I knew from stand-up days, he was often accused of lifting bits or mm-hmm. somehow having a computer mind that it would absorb yeah. other comedians. and. I started doing stand up in San Francisco in 1975, mm-hmm. and Robin Williams was in that beginning group, Robin Williams, Dana Carvey. One of the bits that Robin Williams did was the middle class white boy blues. Uh-huh. And I thought it was really uh, fresh and original till I saw it. He's got the, uh, Robert Klein's uh, middle class educated blues in here. That's and right, it's the same yeah. type of theme where, where an overprivileged, uh, somebody with more than enough money is complaining about the little things that are wrong in his life, mm-hmm. and, and it's clearly uh, Robin was influenced <laughs> from from that piece.
0: And it's interesting too that the things like that even have have cycles to them. Where Weird Al just released a song called First World Problems" that is, uh, yeah. I think it sounds like a Pixie song. Am, am I wrong? I don't know if it's a Pixie song, but either way, I, I'm never good at who he's actually imitating, but it's exactly that. It's the same, just not a blues song. Right. And so it, it, that's cyclical. Obviously, again, yeah, I've heard the same thing about Robin Williams that he either intentionally or unintentionally just had that kind of brain that just sucked it yes. all up and pushed it back yeah. out. But it would go unnoticed because that, that his energy. And then you've got Robert Klein, who, again, I feel like is kind of this oddly underappreciated genius where I thought of him more of as an actor growing up, not as a right. stand up. I didn't right. know his stand up. Uh huh. Th- are, there, are there other people who's. That you can think of maybe whose stand-up career became eclipsed by the other stuff that they they've done because it's again this is he's got a whole catalog. Well, you know
1: Tim Allen, sure. all, all the comedians that went on to uh, becoming actors, uh, Roseanne, sure. uh, a number of uh, um, Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. sure.
0: Those. And at least he's still doing it. And yeah. I mean I, I believe Robert Klein is too, but you don't again people. It's it's one of those things where you don't unless you're on the East Coast you're not probably going to get any Robert Klein in your life right you know right um so let's see i'm trying to think so what was the first comedy album you ever owned or listened to i'm curious about that
1: don rickles hello dummy really the first (laughs) one and i remember listening to it over and over again and just being hysterical because i had never heard a comedian insult people before Uh and insult you know ethnic all you know his Mm. own jews everybody else's, blacks, Italians, Chinese, mm-hmm. and it just put me on the floor.
0: I bet, I bet. So how old were you when you first heard that?
1: Uh, boy, I must have been maybe 15, mm-hmm. something like that.
0: And then w- when you're exposed to something like this that kind of changes your perspective, do you go back, did you go back and look at this other stuff that you enjoyed and you're like, what was I thinking? Or were you like, well, I it was a simpler time. I'm just curious like how how this changes your life. No, brain. I think I
1: appreciated them all on their own level f- mm-hmm. for what they were. Another thing about Robert Klein was when you read about the history of the Improv, that mm-hmm. nightclub that started in New York before it came out here to L.A.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Robert Klein was one of the first performers there that that got up and did stand up. Okay. So the generation before him, they you know did the Catskills and those kind of Playboy clubs and mm-hmm. all of those, but he he really started in a stand up comedy club. Yeah. And, and that may have had something to do with it. I think Bette Midler. Uh, entertained at the improv as well. But uh, people would uh, come over after their Broadway shows. And he acted in some Broadway shows and they would try stuff out, whether songs or comedy.
0: That's interesting because I don't necessarily think about venue or about location changing your perspective on what comedy can be, but I feel like maybe that was a big thing if you're, if your living was on the road but in a certain type of club, yeah. servicing a certain type of audience, yes you know, especially if, if you've got the same perspective if it's all older Jewish comics doing material for older Jewish people right. it's not it doesn't need to evolve right. by necessity so then when you're in a, in, a, in a club in New York, you've got this new group of young people with money. You know the baby boomers who, who exactly and that's that I mean that, and that's another change like to speak to them i don't know how old he was at the time, early thirties i I'm assuming right I mean I guess that makes sense uh you know, to be speaking to people who some of them were disaffected, heavily disaffected, and to to he clearly cares he's got a very you know strong liberal streak in him, yeah, you know to to be kind of outspoken is kind of uh again very new because all they were hearing was from these these older people. Um, where so where did you so did you grow up in San Francisco or that's where you started comedy? Uh, just
1: started comedy. I moved there after college. I grew up on the East Coast in upstate New York, okay. Rochester, Glens Falls. Okay. Oh, okay. And went to college in Pennsylvania and then moved out after college to the West Coast.
0: did you go to college for something entertainment or media related or No,
1: I was a shy kid and mm-hmm. I was an English major and thought I would be a publishing person. I would be an editor and work with famous authors because I love the written word and I love writing and reading. And uh, the publishing houses in New York did not share my dream huh. when I got there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I ended up, uh, I thought if I'm going to be miserable and unemployed and not have any friends where I am, because my parents moved there after I was in college, mm. why not start over in a really cool city? And I decided San Francisco seemed to have that aura and allure. Yeah. And just fell into stand-up by accident when a friend uh, who I met there said, why don't you come down and see me do stand-up at a local basement of a church where he was doing stand-up. Amazing. And that's where Robin Williams showed up and Dana Carvey and, and Kevin Pollack and a few
2: other people. This was like the worst to me. And civil defense was heavy then. I don't know if you remember this, but this was like an overriding concern. They spent so much time talking about it that I had nightmares. I cared. First of all, they were very subtle. They told us children, the siren means disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Dream about them often. You hear a siren go under a tree. <laughs> Give up. It's too terrible. Don't even try to save yourself. The si- they taught us a siren means disaster. Then they had the foresight to blow a siren every day at 12 o'clock. Walking home from the school with a lunch barn. And... Oh, <laughs> Oh, it's just 12 o'clock. <laughs> I used to second guess. What if the Russians bombed at 12 o'clock? They're not idiots. We'll bomb at 12 o'clock, Ivan. They don't know. They think it's lunch. <laughs> We had all kinds of warnings, you know. We had... This is you know, how stupid they were. They actually let this information... Out. We had warnings when uh, the enemy was over Montana. You know, you got four short blasts, three long blasts. When they're over Alaska, you get five. long then you can really kid around. You could play handball for an hour before you take cover.
0: <laughs> was it watching them that made you... These kinds of people made you think you, want, you could do it? Or did you have another... Because you said you're shy. So did you have yeah. any desire to perform before this?
1: Well... I had never seen people my own age doing stand-up, okay. only older comedians on TV. Mm-hmm. So when I saw people my own age, and they were really funny, I was knocked out. And I thought, if this fascinates me, maybe it would fascinate America. I know. I'll write an article about them and sell it to magazines. But to get in with them and get their trust, I'll pretend I'm an aspiring comedian. So that's, wow. that's what happened. It took me two months to work up the courage to go on stage the first time. Mm-hmm and uh when i did the first time it went really well i had many not well times after that mm-hmm. but the first time was so addicting that it, i lost interest in the article and decided to just do the stand up
0: wow so you never wrote it you never even that's no. amazing <laughs> to to totally transform you again not like that, that can't be understated from self professed shy person who wants to write and who Wow! See, that kind of blows my mind. I mean, did you did you did you feel weird knowing that you were doing this kind of like? I mean, you're not being shady, but doing this thing that nobody else knows about, where you're like, I'm gonna get into these people's trust. Like, did it feel weird to you at
1: first? Uh, a little weird, but eventually, when I lost interest in doing the article and decided to be one of them, then it felt less they weird. They
0: converted you. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: The, the guy that uh, ran the place was a guy named Frank Kidder who who became known. As the godfather of the San Francisco comedy scene, and he would give little uh, lessons and lectures about comedy before the shows to us, Mm -hmm. and then at the end of the show, uh, he would take the money that he had gotten from people coming in, and he'd hold out a dollar to each comedian and say, if you need it, Mm -hmm. he would do that. Wow.
0: Wow. Did you? I'm curious. Did you talk about Robert Klein with any of these other people you were coming up as a comedian with? Like, w- I,
1: I think we talked about all the comedians that influence us that that we loved, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it was Klein and Carlin and Richard Pryor were the the three, you know, gods of comedy at the time. And then a little later on, Steve Martin mm-hmm. came along, yeah, and Robin Williams.
0: Sure, of course. Which is that's interesting too for him to come out of that same scene and then to be an influence on the yeah, same people. Yeah,
1: for sure. Wow. But we used to watch uh, Robin with our mouths open, just not believing how somebody could be so amazing, mm-hmm. so far beyond us, and he was clearly destined for something special, we could tell.
0: Was, it that, was that energy consistent? Yeah. Really? He'd yeah. just always get up there and always just be... Yeah. That's phenomenal. Even,
1: even if it was a dead audience of six people, he would have them on the floor.
0: So it, it, that, he's one of those guys where I feel like uh, I feel like any any comedian feeds off an audience, but to know that <laughs> you don't need them to get up there is is kind of a challenge too, right? Yeah, you know, to just give. I've got my own energy. If you want to enjoy this, great, and that'll help me out. But if not, I've still got my own show going on inside my
1: head. But but he wasn't even separate from the audience. He would go into the audience and play with them. So if you weren't feeling like laughing or seeing the show, you became the show, you know, with him. Jeez. And, and I later did uh, improv with him, improvisational comedy. Oh my. And when you do that with Robin, you become stage scenery. Because <laughs> even if you're out front and he's in the back, he can raise an eyebrow and, and get the focus of the audience.
0: See, that's not the first time I've heard that, too. I've heard stories about him being on stage with John Ritter. There's yeah. a story that I, I, I've, I've heard. He's on stage with John Ritter. John Ritter is... Annoyed with the thing you're talking about and just stands there and does nothing and waits for and gives him nothing. So I've, I've heard that, that it, it, it had the audience loved him, but maybe yeah. sometimes performers got a it was a bit much. But I mean, again, like it's if nobody's ever been like that before, I'm sure you have never seen anything like that before, right? No. And, and to see him live, woof, that's phenomenal. Well, okay, so when you were doing stand up at the time, obviously everybody's style develops. Did, was there somebody that you might have been? Emulating at the time, or did you have your own thing? Did, were you conscious of how how your own style evolved?
1: Um, people often compared me to Woody Allen and Dick cabot uh-huh. and Woody Allen was a huge influence, mm-hmm. both his stand up, which people aren 't even aware that he did stand up sure. before the movies yeah and then he he was a writer also. He wrote these short stories for The New Yorker mm-hmm. and collected them in, into book volumes. And that stuff influenced me, too, because it was very joke-oriented mm-hmm. and, and sort of very silly and self-deprecating, so I, I sort of patterned myself after after him.
0: But As a quiet, shy person, I feel like he is the kind of guy that a lot of us would emulate yeah. and want to be, because it's, well, I sat there, I took my time, I wrote this great thing, and I'm giving it to you, like, there is, there is that, like, I, I, somebody like him has to have a well-honed act, because otherwise... Again, the shy people will get destroyed in front of an audience.
1: Yes. He was the king of nerds, too. Mm -hmm. He he was a guy who was not attractive and Mm -hmm. did not have much of a physique. And he was horrible in sports and could not get to first base with girls. And yet, big laughs and big success in show business. So it gave us all hope.
0: Right. (laughs) Absolutely. I can relate to that. Um, So how... Uh, and, and, and I know your career eventually went from from stand up, then to a lot of TV work. Did were they did they coincide? Were they at the same time?
1: Yeah, I was doing stand up at the Comedy Store and the Improv in L.A. and, mm-hmm. and I met uh, one of the comedians there who took a liking to me and said, "Do you want to write a script with me? I'm owed a Jefferson's script." All right. And he wanted a partner for it, so okay. I, I sort of got shoehorned in with him, and that was the first script that I did for the Jeffersons and then we became a writing team he was a black guy so we were a black white writing team hired for the first staff job on the new Odd Couple which was a black version of the Odd Couple starring Ron Glass and Damon Wilson and that became the first staff job of about seven or eight writing steps that i went on to do
0: wow when did that when did that one come out in relation to
1: about 82
0: 82 okay and when did the first one end 70 mid 70s a
1: few years before that yeah Yeah. okay
0: that's interesting to to reboot it that quickly yeah um Uh,
1: gary marshall was the executive producer all right wow he he had done the original so Mm -hmm.
0: yeah to that's interesting too that he was willing to just revisit something he'd already done yeah uh, man, what was that like to go from... I mean, again, obviously writing was your mm-hmm. thing first, and um, but then to go from stand-up to get picked to do this show that you might not have pegged yourself to write for an all-black show, or at least... A-
1: Before that, I had written several spec scripts trying to get in mm-hmm. the legitimate way. Sure. So I was used to writing scripts, but it's a little bit shocking to be on staff and be in the room, it's called, with yeah. lots of... Uh, uh, very smart and very funny other writers and you're expected to be funny right there in, in person not, yeah. not to go away and think about it and write the scene, although that's part of it sure. but you have to be funny in the room which is a whole other art
0: I can't see that. And
1: improv okay. helped with that a little bit.
0: Sure, too. sure. Did you? How much improv did you do then, actually? Because, I mean, you mentioned it, but.
1: I, I was doing it simultaneously as same I started comedian. Okay. So it, it helped because uh, sometimes things happen in the room or hecklers, and it helps you deal with the situation and, right. and sort of freeform your act, too.
0: And that's, uh, it's something that I think goes underappreciated is, you know, we're talking about a guy, Robert Klein, who has clearly has musical talent also, you know, and is an actor. Um, And I, I, in no way do I like to be derisive of newer comedians. But there was a period of time, if you want to hop back to Vaudeville, where you had a set of skills uh, in the entertainment world that eventually became uh, you know, little pieces, little tools you could use. Right. And so whatever you ended up being, if you were a TV star, well, okay, I'm a TV star, but, you know, I used to play the violin and I could juggle and I could do all this stuff where, uh, you know, you you have another set of skills that, that helps you become a writer. You know, you, you yes. have improv and stand-up. Is, it doesn't always happen that way. You know, some people do get pulled out of nowhere without this sort of other bag of tricks to work with. Exactly. Um so, all right, did you, so now I'm curious, have you, have you met Robert Klein? Do you know Robert Klein? Has that ever... Never or, met him. I would love to meet him. Of
1: course. Oh,
0: my goodness. Um, I, I did
1: meet uh, a few comedy icons besides Robin. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield I actually sold a joke to. Really? That was a thrill. Oh, that's good. And uh, I met Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. He didn't try anything on me. Uh-huh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind.
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um... Did uh, Richard Pryor came to the comedy store one night and got oh, to meet him.
0: Oh, boy. That is mind blowing. <laughs>
1: and Steve Martin, too.
0: Oh, my God. Did you, Do you remember the joke you sold to Roddy Dangerfield?
1: Yes. I don't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of uh, I know my daughter is loose. Uh, she met a guy in a bar. He asked her what her sign was, and she said, Yield.
0: <laughs> I do remember. Wait a minute. I've heard that, too. Really? I think. I've, is that on one of his albums? I don't know. Like, Could be. that sounds so familiar. That's a great. Oh, my, was he? So he was Rodney Dangerfield at the time. Oh, he yeah? wasn't. He wasn't his old name. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so did you know him, or did was that just some something? I,
1: I think I was on a lot where he was doing some uh, one of my shows. Okay, and he was there, and somehow I I ran into him and said, "Are you open to looking at material?" And uh-huh. he was. And wow. Said,
0: How? Uh, see, that's that's the other thing is. Uh, there are different eras of Hollywood and different eras of entertainment. That's a thing that you I, doesn't happen anymore. You know, where you can walk up to somebody, say, hi, how are you? Are you open to jokes? And they might. They, you know, they're not going to just shove you off and say, talk to this person.
1: Right.
2: That's fantastic. Well,
1: some people you encounter clearly write all their own material. For sure. And, and some are open to that.
2: I live in New York City, and uh, I have tremendous respect for people who... Who fight adversity and, you know, hard time and the horrors and misery and fear in the city sometimes. Ever see a guy fishing at 125th Street in the Hudson River? That is patience. Supposing he did catch something. give you an idea what kind of bullock monster fish that's gotta be? What a tough New York fish will come out of the water, boom, rip that goddamn hook out of my mouth, you'll know, anyway. What, do they think that tickles, you moron? <laughs> Give me that bait. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, 20 years dodging tugboats. I'm going to fall for that hook, you rube. But are you a of town? <laughs> All New York City animals are tough, like New York City people. Everywhere else, it saved the wildlife. Everywhere else in the world. In New York City, it's public policy to kill whatever wildlife we have. <laughs> it is a misdemeanor to feed a pigeon in the city of New York. Which they're not enforcing yet, thank goodness, 1984. It'll happen, though. You know, what are they, old people, who feeds them, right? Were they gonna arrest them? Come here. All right, Muldoon Pigeon Squad, let's go pop up again for a- Watch him for knives, Billy.
1: Speaking of different eras, uh, my first paid writing job was for Jimmy Walker, being on staff for him. Really? And he's famous for using lots of comedy writers. Mm-hmm. So in the first wave of his staff, it, before me. It was David Letterman, Jay Leno, and uh, Elaine Boozler, wow. and a few others like that. But in my group was uh, Louis Anderson and uh, Robert Schimmel. You wow! Yeah. Uh huh. So we were uh, we were together, and so we would meet in the basement of his condo on Burton Way in mm-hmm. Beverly Hills, once a week. Bring each of us bring in 50 jokes on assigned topics. This this was after Good Times. This was just for his okay. nightclub act, and he would read each joke and say yes or no wow. or like that.
0: Wow! And see, that's the interesting thing too. Is is the uh, <laughs> if I think if if people aren't in the entertainment business yet, and even I, who you know, I'm in and out of entertainment, but to hear that that it is kind of this like it's like a factory setting. It's like all right, I've got a bunch of jokes I just pumped out. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. You probably get used to heartbreak and you don't really it, it, right is it how quickly for you is it just like okay my joke wasn't good that's okay i mean how
1: oh you see it's part of the process because everybody had thumbs downs on some of their jokes mm-hmm. and uh, jimmy understood that and everybody else did too so it was fine mm-hmm. sometimes you could resell the turndown jokes to other people that makes sense
0: that makes that uh, is that a market that exists anymore is that a thing i mean are, are there writers rooms for comedians or are they just is it mostly just well,
1: every, every are you talking about the sitcom writers no
0: rooms? i i mean like for actual for for stand-ups i'm just wondering oh. if anybody does that anymore
1: i i would think it would be easier today to contact comedians because of the internet yeah, everybody right. has websites you can approach them that way mm-hmm. so if there's a comedian you want to write for
0: yeah right look them up yeah um and then I, my next question was going to be about the writers' room. Is is it easier doing this the the Jimmy Walker thing, or is it easier doing? Because I get the feeling that that sitcom writers' rooms are kind of destructive, or that they feel like they kind of tear you up a little bit. And I'm uh,
1: they they can it all often depends on the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one showrunner who divided the staff into the story people and the joke people. Mm-hmm. I was in the joke people, people he felt were stronger in jokes. Mm-hmm. Other people stronger in structure yeah. and storying. Uh, and sometimes you're expected to be both mm-hmm. but usually you have a strength in one thing or the other if if you don't perform if you continuously pitch stuff that doesn't go you you it can be a little uh, uh cruel depending on how sensitive For the sure. showrunner and other people are
0: yeah um so as a guy growing up who loved jokes and that was your thing what was it like listening to Robert Klein who wasn't very sticky at all like yeah. what did that do to your concept of comedy.
1: He, he was still funny and I, and it just made me realize there are different kinds of funny. Um, so try to develop what what's mine. It, and it takes you a while. It takes a number of years to grow into your own style. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ronnie Dangerfield clearly had a, a pattern and a formula to his jokes mm-hmm. and that was very different from what Steve Martin did and Jackie Mason and George Carlin was another brilliant master that told stories Mm -hmm. about his background so you learn that uh talk about yourself and what works for you
0: Mm -hmm. why do you and maybe you don't know but why do you think robert klein's robert klein often gets overshadowed by other comedians i've been trying to think of it myself and why i didn't think of him as a stand-up until somebody brought him to me
1: uh, one thing is he did not have a high profile hit TV series mm-hmm. like you know Robin did and Roseanne and sure. Tim Allen. So that could have been part of it mm-hmm. and maybe the other part of it is that uh, I, I, I think he's a little bit uh, smart, you know you know mm-hmm. I- intellectual and, and a lot of cultural references and, and maybe it too hit for the room. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. Woody Allen made movies, and that helped. He didn't. I don't think he wanted to do stand up. He pretty much had to be pushed on stage. Mm-hmm. He was really shy.
0: Right. And that's the other thing too. Is is the the intelligence in in his stuff is. I, I'm I'm not really sure how to draw the comparison or or the contrast in that. You know, Woody Allen obviously very intelligent and but did tell kind of like shticky jokes, but like very very solid, wonderful jokes. And yeah. I mean, I know he had a team that wrote for him too, but still. It's interesting that there's the same kind of intelligence at play in both these guys, but they couldn't be more different, really. Exactly. And Woody Allen didn't act out his stuff that much. He was he didn't feel like he would be that kind of guy who would be comfortable enough to act out on stage. He's just, right. here's my joke, here's my joke, I've got my character, that's all you get.
1: Although when he made, uh, was it Sleeper, where he becomes the sperm? <laughs> so he acted out certain ideas. For sure. Of, of, but they, they, you're right, they weren't his jokes, that was from his scripts.
0: yeah. Uh, which is, again, I'm sure that's where his comfort level was, too. Being able to, you know, yeah. hide behind... Not hide behind, but to use this, the, the tools of cinema to play... Because that, that makes me think, like, Robert Klein... Maybe his albums weren't all that experimental, but his comedy was. Um, but like somebody like Albert Brooks went on to do... From wonderfully experimental... like Maybe the most experimental comedy albums of his time... To being one of the most influential comedic filmmakers of his yes. time... Robert Klein didn't jump platforms at any point, really. He's just been a stand-up or an actor, you know, where you're maybe at the whim of a writer, at the whim of a director. And I I wonder if that's maybe, you know, colored people's perception of him.
1: Could be, although maybe he thinks of himself as as jumping platforms because he did Broadway plays, he did some movies... He's got a book out that's autobiographical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think it came out in 2006.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, let me... Uh, <coughs> oh my God, my cat is so loud. Sorry about that. Um, let's, uh, let's see. So let's talk about... Actually, let's talk about the, the physical album itself because this is a really, really great cover and, and also you brought the inserts. One is... The lyrics to the song correct middle
1: class educated blues it's so
0: great and it's two sided it looks like a yellow uh legal pad uh, sheet yeah
1: fitting in with the uh, school theme mm-hmm. of of, uh, of the album
0: which is so great I mean it does yeah i mean that, this this whole thing is like supposed to be his middle school high school room filled with more Americana than i've ever seen in one image and that's the other thing too is is maybe the, maybe he's redefining. What it is to be, you know, an American. His, you know, he's a. Like people talked about him kind of being post, uh, like you know, post Catskills. He's not, you know, he, but he's this young Jewish kid, who you know, he's not your typical handsome football player Anglo. You know what I mean? Exactly. Which is great. But this is one of the more America. He's he's making fun of America, but just as much as he obviously this is a nostalgia fest. You know. So he kind of redefines what it means to be like a young American, which is kind of wonderful about this.
1: Right. And and it's called Child of the 50s. So he's clearly identifying his generation and when he grew up. Mm-hmm. Maybe the comedians before him would have been Child of the 40s or 30s, depending sure. on who was talking
0: there's and there's so much going on. We've got oh he's got a Harry Belafonte album on the cover. We got boxing gloves and Atlantic City pillow. He's got some other records that I can't quite identify.
1: My Little Margie comic book. The the Mad Magazine. Alfred E. Newman mm-hmm. is here. Uh, Cap
0: guns, radios. There's a brownie. There it's just the Monopoly set. So great. And, again, and, Peyton Place book. Oh yeah. There you go. And a Fallout Shelter sign, which I think is also on the yeah it's also on the cover of the album itself. And there's so much to play with, and he's one of the first people to have this kind of, I don't want to call it ironic nostalgia, but there's a lot of nostalgia, but at the same time there's plenty of criticism of the time that he grew up in, you know? Sure. And I don't know, That's it's, it's something that we take for granted is going to come out of people's mouths nowadays, like, well, you know, we can be nostalgic, we can have fun with it, but I'm going to make fun of the authority figures from the time, I'm going to make fun of what it was like to grow up you know like you said he's not talking about divorce he's not talk he's talking about stuff that's relevant to people his age yeah yeah you know he doesn't have to put on this front um
1: school cafeteria ladies Yeah. things that the students were going through at the time probably mm-hmm.
0: do you remember do you so is this is this your original copy this it is, is the original one you bought it is. do you remember opening it up and just plopping it on the on the, the turntable for I, the first time
1: I, I do And it was always a treat and he was always funny mhm uh, this one came out in 1973.
0: It looks like. Mm-hmm. So, um, is it? Do you still buy comedy albums at all, or did you stop at some point? Uh,
1: now everything seems to be so available on, sure. on online, um, and you're watching videos a lot. Like uh, Louis C.K. will make his mm-hmm. stuff available as a video with him in concert, and I'll right. I'll, I'll get those things, which I love. There's another smart comedian, but he's becoming very popular despite being perhaps too hip for America, but he's got enough people that love him Mm -hmm. that make him very successful. The
2: energy companies, they're spending more money, all these oil companies, on telling you what they're doing for the atmosphere and, you know, to fight pollution than they are on fighting pollution. Shell engineers now have oil herder. We're working on oil slicks, you know, and they have this thing that controls oil slicks. At the end of the commercial, in small print, it says, only in a bathtub or a toilet bowl. (laughs) Anything larger than a bathtub, then you've got to have the oils.
1: How
2: about this? I don't know anything about gasoline, but I do know deck shoes. And if Shell can make good deck shoes, it figures they can make good gasoline. Thank you. And we're sitting home watching, hey, that makes sense, doesn't it? They have the most impressive voices doing their commercials. They're just... Amoco had a commercial running for a long time. They've taken off now. This really self-righteous thing. Guy with a work shirt and a guitar, just an ordinary guy representing just an ordinary American oil company, singing, "What can one man do, my friend? What can one man do, searching, thinking, conscience, to fight pollution in the air that's coming out from everywhere?" Then they have him taking his baby home from the hospital, and he says confidently underneath, "I like Amoco." I'm glad I use it. Of course, what comes out of the pipe now of Amoco is good for my baby. <laughs> what can one man do? my I'd like the president of Amoco to put his mouth on the exhaust pipe <laughs> of a new car with Amoco chugging in it. You know. You'll see what one man can do, my friend. Do you go see a lot of live comedy or is it more that you're,
0: you're, you just pick up what sounds interesting online? I'm curious, because some people don't, you know... Live comedies maybe isn't their thing anymore. And I'm curious.
1: I, I don't see a lot of live comedy anymore, but I watch it on, you know, HBO and Showtime and YouTube and and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love movies, you know, and, and I I write movie scripts and sure. so I see a, lots of movies. And working on my own writing, you know, I I, feel, I have that Judeo-Christian ethic of if I'm out watching another performer. Uh, should I be home working on my own stuff? (laughs) Right, right.
0: I understand that. I know you said you haven't met him, but have you ever seen Robert Klein live? I never have. uh, I'd love to. Yeah, no, I I can't imagine what that was. What are some great live acts that you've seen maybe that you weren't necessarily performing in the same room with, but I'm curious. Uh,
1: In terms of comedy, Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Martin, Robin Williams. um, I saw... Weird Al. Oh, that's en- good. En- enjoyed that. I love it. Um, Robert Schimmel was terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you know Wendy Liebman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she was really wonderful. Um, Joan Rivers. I did some writing for Joan Rivers and saw her right. live. Uh, who else? Oh, Bob Hope. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. He uh, was fun. And... Um, I guess I guess mainly those.
0: What's what's the first time when did it first strike you what you were doing when you're writing jokes for people that you knew of? I mean, did you get to write jokes for some of your heroes because it seemed like you wrote for some legends. So that's got
1: to be I I wrote for Jay Leno a lot uh-huh. and um uh it it's just fun seeing someone at that stage deliver your material. Yeah. And at the same time it makes you want to uh uh, write for lots of more people after that
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what's do you remember the first joke you sold at all to anybody I'm curious
1: it, it would have been a Jimmy Walker joke and I don't remember I sold him so many of okay. them I know I should have framed it I did frame the first dollar I earned in comedy from that guy Frank Kidder who said here if you need it uh, I have that that's awesome
0: <laughs> that's so good um, so all right, so the first show you, you wrote on was the, the New Odd Couple, right? You said? Uh,
1: yeah, well, there was the freelance assignment for The Jeffersons, and mm-hmm. then the first oh, yes, staff right. position was The New Odd first Couple. First staff
0: position. So, okay, so was that. Wow. So, what are the, uh, Let's just talk about some of the other shows you've written on. I'm curious because, like, that's, the, the, that's so a great time It was The time New time Odd TV. Couple, yeah. followed
1: by Different Strokes, which is the Gary right. Coleman mm-hmm. show, which they say is cursed because so many people have come to bad endings through that.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, there was a Together We Stand, which was Elliot Gould and Dee Wallace, the mom from E.T., and a house full of different ethnic children that they really? adopted to appeal to every possible demographic. Of course, of course. That lasted for one season. Uh, different shows, Together We Stand. Uh, Living Dolls was Michael Learned, the mom from the Waltons. Uh-huh. And she was the house mother to aspiring New York fashion models, including... Halle Berry and Leah Remini were were two really? of them. Really, so that that was a season. Um, That's kind of mine. There was She's the Sheriff with Suzanne Somers inheriting her deceased husband's sheriff job. <gasps> Oh, my goodness. That lasted for two seasons, believe it or not. Did it really? Yeah. What,
0: what was it like working on these? Was it just like, this is a job? Was it like, this is kind of an exciting idea? Or was like, this is crazy, and I'm just going to enjoy it while I'm writing it? Because these sound so crazy, some
1: of them. All of that, and it all, <laughs> as I said, it depends on the showrunner. Sure. And the showrunners, for a lot of these, really appreciated jokes. So mm-hmm. I, I did better and enjoyed those more. Yeah. I, I worked for... Carol Burnett, at one point, decided to try again with a new audience so she assembled a uh, a whole new cast of young hip people all new writers and producers including myself and she wanted to appeal to the saturday night live type of audience and that lasted one season because they didn't really want to accept that from her Uh they liked her old shtick but that that was a treat working with her both she and suzanne somers treated writers really well
0: yeah that's amazing good Goodness, working for Carol, I can't imagine working for Carol Burnett. Like that would be a dream. Yeah. That still would be a dream if she can't If she decided she wanted a show today, I'd be I'd absolutely signing yeah. up. Well, see, that's interesting too, though, is to work. That's, that's a thing about entertainment is, is if people want to evolve, you've got to be aware of not only what they've done before, but how they want to be perceived in your right. joke writing. Right. Is, it, that, is there pressure there? That's interesting. Know, they
1: tell you and you can usually adapt. Uh, a lot of times if I'm not on staff for somebody, I'll write for individual comedians. So I got to go to the houses of uh, Joan Rivers, Roseanne, mm-hmm. uh, Dana Carvey. And Yakov Smirnov, who I've really? been working with uh, throughout.
0: That's crazy. See, uh, that, now he's a gentleman I'd like to have on the show. Uh, not oh. only because I find him interesting, but because he's got amazing shoes. I'm sorry, but I saw him at a show once, and he had the most amazing pointed shoes.
1: I can I can put you in touch with him. He just we just had a, uh, a Barnes and Noble appearance for my book when it came out, and he he was the when he uh, came host. Out for, really? Yeah. Oh, that's so good.
0: He's one of those guys who's had you know a. He still has a career. He's got his, you know, he's got his own stuff going on. Uh, but you know, people relegate him to a certain period and a certain type of right. humor. Yeah. Um,
1: you know what he's been doing for the last twenty years?
0: I don't know anything about his act or anything for the la- other than being in Branson. You know,
1: that's yeah. all I know is that's Branson. It. He has yeah. his own theater in Branson, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the Yakov Smirnoff show, and it's extremely successful. Yeah. But now he's trying to get back into into uh, sitcom world. So we, really, we wrote a script, uh, uh, a few writers, him and mm-hmm. myself, and he's outpitching that that's amazing
0: see that he's one of those guys you wouldn't think i wouldn't have pegged if i had been aware of comedy at the time if i had been older at the time there's certain people i wouldn't have pegged to be able to evolve if only because their act seemed you know it's very specific i mean you know it's cold war era so once the cold war is quote unquote over like that's that's a huge there's got to be a lot of pressure to shift you know what I mean but I mean again this is exactly what we're talking about it's like I guess if you have good writers and you know people who know you and you can trust like how do you I mean besides being referred by another writer how do you establish trust with somebody you've never worked with before like Carol Burnett like that's
1: uh, well, Carol Burnett inherited me because, uh, I was hired by the producers to be on, on the staff for that show. Okay. So she had no, uh, no say in that matter. Okay. But okay. You, so you just try to do the best job you can and be polite to her and, sure. and, and not, not be worshiping her too much. <laughs> she's used to that all the time. No,
0: I bet. I bet. Um, My goodness. um, And I don't even think I knew that. When was that? When was her second show?
1: That would have been in around 1990, 1990. 1991,
0: around there. Okay. I'm really surprised I hadn't seen the show because that was about the time when I was learning what comedy was. Um, So was your family uh, aware of comedy? Did they expose you to new stuff? Were you watching a lot of TV? Um,
1: My parents had... uh, Bill Cosby albums, Mm -hmm. Shelley Berman albums, Mm -hmm. Stiller and Mara albums, and uh, Carl Reiner Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old man. And all of that, my father was constantly telling jokes, although (laughs) he worked in, in retail. And my mother was an English high school English teacher, college English professor. Mm-hmm. She was not a big joke teller, but a good audience.
0: Right, right. That, see, that's oh, that's amazing. And I, my sister,
1: uh-huh. uh, who's five years younger than I am, my challenge was to make her laugh at the dinner table. And I considered myself a success when I could do one of two things with her: either get her to laugh so hard that she would fall off her chair onto the floor, <laughs> or milk come through the nose. Of
0: course, of course. <laughs> That's so perfect. And you don't, I I feel like uh, you're spoiled at that point, because uh, once once you get an actual audience in front of you, sometimes it's hard to read if they're enjoying themselves or not, right? Um,
1: Especially when you start off, they tend to give you either the beginning of the evening spots or the very end spots. So so the most challenging audience is either way.
0: Yeah. Do you, as far as getting up in front of a group of people nowadays, either to talk about your book or to talk about anything, is it... I mean, is it, Are there still nerves, or is it? Did you? I mean, because you still, you know, maybe you're still the shy guy inside. So I'm just curious. Like, does it? Are you? at ease in front of an audience still i mean how often do you get in front of people to talk in front of them uh
1: i, I i've transitioned i do stand up occasionally but i mm-hmm. transition i don't know if you're familiar with the storytelling movement in mm-hmm. la yeah so I, I do that uh you know fairly frequently okay and and i enjoy that and and that's less pressured than stand up you're not yes. expected to get a laugh You know, every so often, right? And you can be more, uh, more. I think creative and personal. Sure. And with stand-up,
0: and when you do tell a joke, the cathartic jokes sometimes are the best laughs
2: too. The meaning of words. As a child, certain things were couched a certain way. For example, my mother gave me a note to give the druggist and said, "Robert, your sister is unwell. Take this to the druggist." I said, "I don't unfeel like it." this un? Did you have that where they've used phony names for real things because of their own self-consciousness and embarrassment? Robert, don't touch your popo. Henry, get your hands over it, Satoru. Hildegard, you made a bum bum. Excuse yourself and leave the table. We don't make bum bums at the dinner table. And leave your punky alone. And we'll talk about your toddies Tuesday when Aunt Rose comes. You've got a dungie in your nose if you've got to make a tt go while the boo-boo is warm. We cannot have this. Well, the world ain't like that, you know. When you grow up, a doctor is not going to examine you and say, I'm afraid it's your poo-poo, bub. <laughs> We're going to perform a poo I'm afraid. Uh, do you have Blue Cross? Fine. We'll get a room for you, uh. The draft board was a very humiliating experience for me, but they did not... Go. All right, men, line up, show your tutsus to the sergeant, let's go! I said tutsus, soldier, not pupus! <laughs> pupus Monday morning 0600, and cease and assist on those boom-booms, Marine! The enemy can detect a boom-boom, on your way! Let's talk about your book
0: really quick. Um, so, it's called 500 Dates, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Online Dating Wars. So... Uh, and uh, this is, you know, this is what you, you came here to talk about originally, but I'm, I'm curious. So how, how long is this in development for this book? I'm curious.
1: Um, this book, I I was luckier than many writers because it was already written at Uh the point where I decided to do a book because I was being paid for writing humor essays for the LA times, the Mm -hmm. Huffington post, uh, the Jewish journal, many publications and websites so at a certain point I realized I had over fifty essays about my dating experiences okay. I thought this could be a book. Yeah. And it was already written. So uh, That's
0: yeah. perfect. I mean so, I feel like that's the dream for a lot of writers. So what uh let's give the audience an idea what it's about. I mean it seems pretty self- uh, The title
1: is five hundred dates, the subtitle is Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Online Dating Wars, and it's uh fifty five humor essays about my dating experiences online experiences in the world of romance, Mm -hmm. plus the last section of the book is I wrote for uh, a publication called Weekly World News, which was a forerunner of The Onion. Mm -hmm. It was fake news stories. So I've collected here the stories that dealt with romance and dating of the fake news stories. We had to write them to appeal to people who would actually think they were news items and Mm -hmm. those who wanted something purely funny and entertaining.
0: Right, right. That's see. That's great. Uh, is there? Uh, my goodness. See, because when you're writing about about dating, I mean, it's been a while. You know, been a while since I've dated.
1: But uh, it's you're not dating anymore. I uh,
0: know. Uh, my wife would uh, she, not like she's that. She's not allowing that. No, it's, for some reason, I don't seems, understand what's going on. Seems very close-minded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just curious. Then, I mean, obviously, the online thing is is a new, uh, it's, it's not obviously a brand new perspective. But how how do you go about? I mean, I guess if it's just your voice, it's your voice, and that's enough. But I'm curious what your experiences were like. I mean, if there's anything you can give us an example of that won't spoil the book too much, uh, of dating online. Yeah, like one of the better, well, maybe a story that that might pique people's interest because it does sound fascinating. Um,
1: I've I've dated a woman who the chemistry was so strong when we first met on the first coffee date that we had a half hour makeout session on that very first date. Oh. <laughs> The next day, she emailed me saying she did not want to get together again because she didn't feel the chemistry was there.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. See, that's... Oh, my goodness. See, that's crazy. But to be... <laughs>
1: that's that's I, hilarious. I, I dated another woman who, when we <laughs> sat down at the table for lunch, took out a hypodermic needle from her pocketbook and explained that it was adrenaline mm-hmm. because she had deadly allergies to nuts and seafood and she even if it was cooked in the same mm-hmm. pan as something else was if she, she could go into anaphylactic shock mm-hmm. and it could be deadly Right. so i was to inject her with the <laughs> with the epidermis. right
0: so she leaves it on you <laughs> yeah my goodness see that's the weird thing about and again maybe it's always been that way about dating but the the level of <laughs> <laughs> the the amount of personal information people are willing to give out immediately because it seems like a necessity, you know, before they even know you. That's, yeah. See, that's shocking to me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Another woman, um, instead of having the traditional coffee date, she wanted to meet at the soup kitchen where she worked on Sundays. And what we did was we delivered... Bags of groceries to homebound AIDS patients uh-huh. to their homes, uh-huh. and that was our first. That's your first date. Wow!
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a test. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, see that, it's not online. I mean, when I think about online dating, it's obviously all dating is first impressions the the most important thing. I'm curious, then, you know, like as it's called 500 Dates. Uh, is there any analogy to the first 500 times you do stand up? Because you're dealing with a different person each time, and but you know there are going to be similarities, and you've got to warm up to just the idea. Yeah, it, you know what I mean. I think
1: it's definitely a similarity because in both cases, you're really—I mean, this is putting it crudely for the the dating aspect—but you're really selling yourself. Mm-hmm. You're selling yourself to the audience. You—you you, basically you want them to like you because that's how they'll laugh, mm-hmm. and you're selling yourself. To your date, this is this is the best me. I'm putting forth my best. Hopefully, you don't reveal all your flaws at that first meeting. Sure, sure. So in both cases, you want to win them over. Mm-hmm. So you are using some of the same techniques. Your your humor, and uh, I think the difference on the coffee date from the stand up is though. You shouldn't be talking about yourself the whole time, which you are in stand-up. But you should—you sure. should hopefully be asking them about themselves. But I've had many dates where I'm stunned at the end of a half hour or an hour to realize that uh, she's been talking about herself. It didn't ask me one question. Really, myself. it happens.
0: <laughs> sure. Which—that's—that's uh, that's, uh, the be the key difference. Is usually there's not a lot of give and take. Although if there is in a in a stand-up, at least you, you've got to learn. You get to learn yeah. how to deal with that.
1: For sure. Um, and hopefully you're not heckled on the coffee day.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I, I like to ask people towards the end is, uh, if nobody's ever heard Robert Klein, um, why would this be a good first album to listen to?
1: Oh, every, every track is funny. It's really uh, personal uh, as to him, and yet it's universal at the same time. Talking about, I think, experiences we've all had with, with school, with dating, with uh, you know growing up uh, privileged compared to most of the rest of the world mm-hmm. um, and some of the old classic shows that he talks about like our gang I think people will relate to those uh, and, and he's just a, a really wonderful and, and funny and dynamic performer
0: and I, I always like to min- oh, I like to bring up to people is you know on any album, there's going to be some dated references, but the whole, the, the general idea, it, it's like I said, it's very American. This is a very, like, it's an Americana-filled record. If you don't know the reference also, it's easy to look up and don't think the comics that you listen to nowadays are not going to be out of date in 20 years. Because Twitter might not exist. I know people think it's going to be universal and it's always going to, right. but Twitter's going to be an out of date reference pretty soon.
1: And, and all of these uh, comedians like Robert Klein influenced today's comedians too, mm-hmm. so that's another thing
0: absolutely and if you can get a hold of the vinyl especially so if it's got this stuff in it it's got a it's got a full poster in it it's got this the eight and a half by 11 sheet it's a it's a full vinyl experience and it's fun you can buy it online obviously listen to it great jokes but it is a great experience to have in your hands and i love that you still have everything in vinyl
1: in especially if you have a record player that can play it that'll mm-hmm. be an added bonus yeah
0: and it's a, yeah and it's a, it's a great sounding record and there's entertaining and all kinds of entertainment on it there's Music on it as well He's a wonderful singer That is one thing That hasn't been brought up yet He's a wonderful singer I really love his voice
1: He plays harmonica too For oh, his That's, uh, that's right
0: Yeah, and that's he does that uh, on on the other album. He does that whole Civil War bit where he's talking about old Civil War movies and and just oh, it's just so funny. It's again, there's so many things here that feel you've probably heard before, but I have a strong suspicion he's the first person to do it in that way. Yes, you know, and this is a great album.
1: I think uh, David Steinberg did a recent series of interviews with comedians, and he might have been Robert Klein might have been one you can probably find that online.
0: Steinberg's interviews are so great. Yeah, and oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm sorry for saying amazing I got some stuff recently from an audience member for saying amazing too many times I'm enjoying myself anyway um, first of all everybody should listen to this album Child of the 50s it it is great Um, uh, where can people find your stuff What, what kind of important dates are coming up
1: they can find my book 500 dates on amazon.com and at Barnes Noble. Mm-hmm. and Noble uh, and in April I will be doing a uh, storytelling show at Tasty words I don't have the exact date but they okay. can look up tasty words online mm-hmm. storytelling and, and I will be there that that will be in the uh, Santa Monica area
0: okay and markmiller.com, is that your website
1: Markmillerhumorist.com. Markmillerhumorist.com. It's sorry, Mark Miller humorist sorry Mark with a K Miller
0: humorist.com I yeah I almost screwed it up uh, what about Twitter
1: uh I'm on Twitter. I believe it's Mark Miller one two three. Easy enough. There you go. And and I'm on uh, Facebook. And I don't even know what that is. But they <laughs> they you know it's if they go to humorous dot com. Everything's everything's there. there.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here.
1: A pleasure. Thanks, Jason. And for
0: picking a really really great album to listen to. People, go out listen to this. Pick up 500 Dates, uh, give it a read, uh, tell me what you think, because I'm going to read it too, um, and uh, again, thank you for being here, and everybody, as always, have a good thing. Hey guys, were you thrown off by that unusual yet rocking theme music? I just wanted to get your attention really quick about front of the show Rob Cutner's Kickstarter for his four-issue comic book series. Uh, it's a comedic sci-fi action tale um, called Shrinkage, and uh, you can go to kickstarter.com, com And search for Shrinkage or just go to bit.ly forward slash Shrinkage Comic. Um, Rob Kuttner, in case you don't know, who's, he's been on the show a couple times now. Um, he writes for Conan. He used to write for The Daily Show. He's the writer and the illustrator is John Lucas, who you might know from X-Men and Deadpool. It promises to be hilarious and uh, there's only eight days to go now. Uh, today's March 25th when this episode comes out. So, uh, just to help him get that made, uh, their goal is $30,000 to get this four issue series of comics. Uh, the art looks amazing and it's uh, bound to be really, really, really funny. Rob Kuttner's just a funny guy and you uh, should go support his work. So, again, go to Kickstarter.com, search for Shrinkage, or just go to bit.ly forward slash Shrinkage Comic. Thanks so much.